Hi, it's Dave and Debbie here of the Dave and Janovic Show on KSL News Radio. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and also catch our show live on KSL News Radio. Now, you don't need a keyword to listen to us, but if you want to win the AirPods, keyword Beehive. Good job, Dave. So text that keyword to 57500 and you'll be entered to win a pair of AirPod Pros. And be sure to listen for a new keyword next week and every week this February for even more chances to win. Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. In some of the greatest marketing in Utah history, try this one on for size The Power District. Dave and Dejanovic. Dave and Dejanovic. Special coverage of the top local story. If you thought Silicon Slopes was good, Try the Power District. How good does that sound? Hey, no Debbie Dujanovic today. Instead, I get Mara Carabello from the Exoro Group. I'm Thanks. so excited to be here. This is so great. I'm <laughs> so excited about this because as I'm doing this little dance after I see some of the renderings about this new Power District with a big, ginormous baseball stadium in the in the middle... You, with your big wet blanket, came in. (laughs) He said, before we just rubber stamp everything and throw a parade for how great this is, let's ask a few questions. I know. I totally grumped up on it. And I just, so here are my disclaimers. I'm not grumpy. I love baseball. I love the investment that this beloved uh, Larry H. Miller Group, who has done so much for this state. But I did say I want to make it complicated, right? I don't want to just give a standing ovation to big ideas. I want to talk about how. And I think we're making a mistake not digging a little deeper and saying, hey, there are no villains and good guys, right? I'm not trying to yeah. pick a bad actor at all. But this is a ton of money. Um, what's it going to do to the neighborhood? Oh, I've got so many questions. $3.5 billion. That is what the headline said. That's the investment in this district. So $3.5 billion investment by the Larry H. Miller Company. They just released some renderings of this area, and it is spectacular. Oh, yeah. if, you, if you allow me to just paint a picture for you folks, uh, first of all, a big, beautiful baseball stadium is, is right in the center. So that that is really the key point of this. But there's a lot of layers to this. There's developments. There's a river walk. There is a, a Ferris wheel. I don't know where this Ferris wheel came from, but all of a sudden there's a Ferris wheel in these renderings. I'm not hating the Ferris wheel. <laughs> the I, Ferris I'm just wheel. saying I'm not hating the Ferris wheel. The fair, it's the eye of Salt Lake City. Uh, but... When we heard about this yesterday, the Larry H. Miller Company released this this video. And the video had a who's who of Utah politicians. Mm-hmm. It had the governor. It had the Speaker of the House. It had the, the Senate president. It had Aaron Mendenhall, Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. It had uh, Luce Escamilla, Senator Luce Escamilla. Yeah. All, Sandra who, Hollins. Who represent that area and are Democrats. The last three you named, I mean, clearly Salt Lake City Mayor, as well as those representatives of the area, they're all Democrats. And then, as you said, we have the top three leaders in state government, speaker, president, governor there, right? And they're all speaking to the importance and the excitement they have for this proposed development. In fact, this is what they had to say about helping the west side of Salt Lake. The west side has long been overlooked for economic development. The west side has been hungry and ready for decades. 
You know, the, the West Side has been like a shopping and entertainment desert. The West Side has been neglected for too long, and, and, and gratefully, the Miller family has seen the vision to invest in this geographical location in a way that's going to bring more investment into the area and lift everybody who lives on that West Side. Now, this isn't a surprise to anybody on the West Side that they've been forgotten, or there hasn't been a huge amount of development or new money restaurants, uh, infrastructure being poured into the West Side. Yeah, that's right. The question is, uh, is this housing development restaurants going to be affordable to the current West Side residents? Can they afford to stay in their houses? Um, is it is it gentrification alone for gentrification's sake? Absolutely, this is going to infuse this geographic area with some cash. But is it going to benefit the residents? Now, here's a big, big, big shout out to the Miller Corporation. They had started with community discussions, they formed community councils, and they are seeking input. Again, my my goal is to not vilify. My goal is to say the devil's always in the details. Exactly. And when you look at the proposals, I think what is difficult for me is you look in this area, a lot of it is old power district smokestack. You know, there there's some real cleanup That's right. that needs to happen. Well, and I mean, you said power district is the best name ever, but let's be clear on what the word power comes from. It's not, it is because these are old uh, industrial areas, and boy, the price tag on industrial cleanup, which will be required, particularly where they've identified the stadium, is going to have a chunk of change price tag question is, is that going to be footed by the taxpayers or is that going to be footed by the 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 developers, wealthy developers? OK, so that's a great question, because right now and we, we saw this with the old Geneva Steel and the vineyard, you know, there, there's a remittance that needs to happen. You yes, need to clean right. up this area because there's a lot of tailings or, yeah. or there's just uh, industrial waste that is sat there in in some cases for decades. Right. Well, nothing's being done with that right now. Mm-hmm. And we know that it's in, uh, uninhabitable, of right. course. Right. So something has to be done, whether you're going to build a baseball stadium yeah. or, you know, condos, low, uh, you know, uh, affordable housing, whatever has right. to happen. You've got to address that in the beginning. So I guess maybe the question is, whose responsibility is that? Well, it, it partly falls on what kind of relationship, the private partner relationship, that you can forge. Now, my point of view would be that the state and the city doesn't start out by doing that. I think that is not a good use of taxpayer money. Here's why. We do know in the long run who will benefit from the stadium or the developers. Um, what we're hearing, I mean, here's what's on the street. If you are at all on, on the hill right now, you're hearing that the state is proposing that they'll own the stadium, which I find remarkable. And they're proposing that they want to do this by adding a transient room tax, or let's call it a tourist tax to every single county in this state. So 29 counties will help pay for a Major League Baseball stadium in Utah. That's the word on the street right now. Now, there's no written bill yet, but the word on the street is that's what the state leaders are proposing. So the question, Dave, becomes, well, it sounds like the state's saying, hey, we'll pay for this um, stadium. you got to figure if they're going to own the property, then the next thing is to say, well, they're probably responsible for mitigation. 
San Juan County probably doesn't have a huge investment on the west side of Salt Lake City. They're probably not totally thrilled to send their dollars up here. Like, who can we send that to? To the baseball stadium we will never go to? Right. Uh, okay, so this this is a little bit of a development because early on, this lawmakers have said, listen, we're, we're not in the... The building business, as far as arenas, that yeah. that falls on the owners. So that that's new. I haven't I haven't heard that. And that's say, some of the rumors. It's in the rumor up. stage, right? We yeah. have not seen a written bill, but it's a widely distributed rumor. So that the the state, are you saying the state would own the baseball stadium? I, this is what's on the street, and this, I love the, the street. I the, love the rumor and mill. The state would help pay for it by passing this charge, this surcharge. Okay, let's continue this conversation because the power district could revolutionize the west side i mean this would be such an enormous enormous boon a financial boon to this area it would transform the west side uh but at what cost and who is going to pick up that tab we'll speak to uh derek miller of the the salt lake chamber of commerce next david Dujanovic. david Dujanovic. david Dujanovic. special coverage of the top local story Let's discuss the power district and the new renderings came out as the Larry H. Miller company talked and and put forth a $3.5 billion plan on the west side. It's about 100 acres. I mean, wrap your head around that. I mean, you're essentially in downtown Salt Lake. You've got 100 acres of a, of a blank slate that you can clean out. And then you build something incredible. And in the center of that would be a proposed Major League Baseball stadium. Now, that's that's not uh, a for sure thing. There's no guarantee that Major League Baseball is going to come to Utah. Sure, there's some indicators that that is a real possibility. We're certainly hoping. A, a lot of us are. I'm number one. I love this idea. But that's not guaranteed. So there is this development and this hope that Major League Baseball comes and you can fully develop this area, this 100 acres, with an incredible river walk. You've got the Jordan River that's passing that's through right. this. This is a huge opportunity. It's a great – I mean, who else would have proximate to downtown a, a, a civic center that's just right there? I mean, this it's already got tracks. It's already got mass transit. It's between the airport and downtown. Huge opportunity. There's already been some investment on the west side. You're, you've seen a lot of new apartment buildings go up that are very nice. So there there's a little bit of growth happening. This would supercharge it on a level that they've never seen before. That's right. That's right. And, and you could almost argue it would be the crown jewel of Salt Lake City, that and city center. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be absolutely incredible if it, if it was fully developed. Now, the real question here is, okay, at what cost? And to whose cost? Who's, That's right. Who's whose pocketbook? And you have to wonder, not only who's literally paying the bill, how much taxpayer dollar is the 3.5 totally private investment against leverage? The other question is, at what community cost, right? So does this so change the nature of the neighborhood that those people currently living there are unable to stay there? Salt Lake City Council member Alejandro Poi uh, had this to say. 
concerned at how little involvement he's had on such a big project, taking over a place he lives, loves, and represents. What is going to happen with North Temple when there's another game? We already have issues with criminal activity and some other things. We don't want this to be a dead zone. That was an interview that uh, Mr. Poy had done with KSL Television's Kirsten Nunez. Uh, and and he brings up some some fair questions. Yeah, he does. I mean, uh, you know, one thing that could be a show of its own is the railroad tracks. So if you live on the west side and you get those slow freight trains, you're sitting in traffic waiting for that really slow f- freight train to leave. Uh, have have we addressed this? And that would probably be a solution between the the rail companies and maybe the government. Again, that's a potential layer of government spending in this area. Derek Miller with Salt Lake Chamber joins us right now, and uh, I'm I'm telling you, it's it's very easy to get caught up in all the excitement, and you don't want to throw a parade over this. But I, I think Mara's brought up some good questions. Uh, Councilman Poy brought up some good questions. Uh, walk us through a little bit about the significance of the project, uh, but maybe some of the downsides that it might bring. Well, Dave great to be with you and and you as well Maura. I think uh, if you want somebody to talk about the downsides you probably need to talk to somebody else. I'm a big proponent of this project. Uh, I I see nothing but upside here. It's really hard, maybe impossible to overstate how great this will be for our community and it's not just about the money. I mean everything takes money. There's a cost to everything. 3.5 billion dollars is a significant amount in, into 100 acres. But what I'm most excited about is the uh, catalyst it will be and, and the impact it will have in a positive way, not just on those 100 acres, but the whole surrounding area. The West Side is a wonderful community. There's a lot of community pride there, as there should be. And when I talk to leaders from that community, uh, including City Councilwoman Victoria Pedro and and the state senator from that area, Luz Escamilla. They're positive about it. They talk to me about what a, a great asset that will be to their community. So I, so I believe them. They're the ones who come from that community. Uh, when I think about it, obviously we think about the ballpark. I like the way that you framed it, Dave. Not a guarantee, but what is guaranteed is that we're going to work our hardest to get it. So, uh, so Derek, I'm, I, I'm still going to refuse the role of wet blanket. I just want to talk about some of the complexity. You have such an interesting point of view because your job now is to represent the business community. And I just this opportunity is tremendous. But your history also includes, you know, working in, um, among other things, the gubernatorial administration. You've been on the executive branch, too. As we approach this and as, as taxpayers, as we're listening to the discussion, what's the right balance between private investment and public tax dollars when you're looking at an opportunity this big? Where, where should their taxpayer dollars be leveraged? I think it's a really important question that you've raised, Maura. And, uh, I did work uh, for Governor Herbert. I was his chief of staff. Uh, before that, I worked for Governor Huntsman in the Economic Development Office, and, and one of my responsibilities was this very point that you're hitting upon, what role does the government play? And my, my personal philosophy about this is that uh, you should be using new tax dollars uh, so that, that 
we know a lot of investment goes into these projects, some of it private, some of it public. But whatever the public part should be, should be whatever is the new tax revenue that's being generated from these projects. So there's a lot of models. I mean, we, we sir, probably don't have the time to get into details about it, but what's happening here in, in Salt Lake City and the opportunity that we have is nothing new. So we have good models around the country. We have some bad models around the country. Uh, and there's a process that you follow, a process with the city, a process with the state, a process with the governor, a process with the legislature. So I'm a big believer that when you've got good process, you, good, you get good outcomes. But as a philosophical standpoint, I, I believe that you use that tax revenue that's going to be generated and you use that to invest in the project. So the idea would be by bringing in the businesses, by bringing in uh, such an incredible development as far as number of houses and apartments, that that would pay for itself? The, the idea is that when you build something, it generates new tax revenue and, and new tax revenue ought to be what is used for the, for the funding. So I, I'd love to know a little bit from your perspective about the timeline. Is this is the is the clock ticking already? Deals are being made already. Um, are we anchoring it around the MLB discussions? Just like what comes first? Um, do we start building housing again? As you said, everyone's really excited about this. What will we see first? Uh, what's on the current timeline? What I really love about this project more is that. It is not contingent upon having a Major League Baseball ballpark. Obviously, we want it. Obviously, that would be just a great asset for our capital city. But what I love about the way that the Millers are positioning this is that it, this project, the Power District, the $3.5 billion, that's going to move forward regardless. And this is a property that needs to be redeveloped. And, and it's an area that needs to, to see some of this improvement. Let's just take as one example, the river. When you think about Salt Lake City, you think about a lot of wonderful things. You think about the mountains. You think about uh, the, the natural amenities. You think about the things that have been built here. You don't necessarily think of Salt Lake City as a river city, but we have a river and we've turned our back on that river for far too long. It's not just an underutilized asset or amenity. It, it's almost a completely non-used, unused asset or amenity. That This is my personal favorite thing about this pro project is that we're going to have a riverfront that I think will be a model for the entire river between the Great Salt Lake and Utah Lake. We're going to, what we're going to see built there will be a model for for the rest of our valley. Derek Miller, thank you for joining us from the Salt Lake Chamber. And the Riverwalk, I've been to San Antonio, yeah, I, great. and they've they've built the city around it, and, and it is incredible. I actually lived in Europe for a couple of years, and everything's built around the rivers. I mean, and everyone's, that's what everyone does. Instead of going to parks, they walk along the riverside, uh, and, and it was wonderful. So the idea that we would have something similar here in Utah is is a very very interesting thing uh, would be wonderful. Obviously, uh, I think the idea that 
even without the Major League Baseball Stadium, that they would move forward with mm-hmm. this development is right. huge news. So, Derek Miller, thank you for joining us. Uh, when we come back, we're blazing through the 2024 legislative session and certain legislation on Capitol Hill could and will make an impact on our cities. Next, the League of Cities and Towns joins us with a check-in on the top legislation that they're excited about and then also maybe what the cities are stressed about. Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. All right, thanks. Oh, yeah, that's right. We have a little something going on. Is it the On the Hill 2024 special coverage with Dave and Dejanovic? We love talking legislation for 45 days, especially when we're in session. We love talking about the legislative session, the laws, the bills that are being passed, and uh, how it affects us. Because when we first heard this, by the way, no Debbie today, but don't worry, we got Mara Carabello (laughs) from KSL at night. I'm excited to be here, and I'll just note for those of us who are watchers of the session, nine days left. Nine (laughs) days left. Do you take your vacation immediately after? So there's a rule at our house that during the legislative session, you are not allowed to make any life decisions. You can't can't even decide a new haircut. But you don't decide to move. You don't decide family planning. You make no choices during the session. It's not good. And then, and then once you detox from the session, yeah, then, then you can start reevaluating exactly. your life. Then you, then you can <laughs> deeply consider your choices, but not during those forty-five days. So, yeah, we everybody takes after you, of course, get an obligatory cold the day after the session ends. Then you, yeah, then you take a vacay. Then you're like, yeah, I do want to go red with my hair. Then, yeah, <laughs> now, exactly. now it's the time. Right. I do think I'll go with a giant pink ponytail. Uh, okay, so. Part of of what I find so fascinating is you've got thousands of bills, or, or well over a thousand bills that are that are being filed. Uh, you know, maybe four or five hundred pass. I think we're only at like hundred and nineteen so far. Right. So there's a lot of bills that are going to be passed here in the next final nine days. Um, how does this trickle down and affect everybody else? So what is passed down from on high? Ultimately, it's got to work itself down. Yeah, I mean, such a great question. I think there's the adage that a lot of us believe, which is local controls the best, like the the government closest to you is the best. So if you look at it from a state perspective, counties and cities are subordinate uh, to the state. They're sort of somewhat at the whim. Um, And so there's county governments, and then there's also uh, most of us live in cities. And those are the ones that are closest to us. But this the relationship between state funding. um, What's really cool is, I don't know that many people pay attention to the associations that exist and advocate on their behalf. There's an association called the Leagues of Cities and Towns, and it represents, I'm going to get the number right, wrong, but there's like something like 270 plus cities in the state. And it's a great question to ask, how are they being impacted? Cameron Deal joins us right now from Utah's League of Cities and Towns. And uh, I'll be interested to hear your take on this, the the 45 days of, all right, hold on, let's see what happens. Well, thank you for having me. And I I agree with Mara. No life decisions can happen during this time. (laughs) Uh, We basically kiss our families goodbye uh, at the start of the session and then get reacquainted after the session. And my, my young daughters have a paper chain on the wall 
where they track the days of the session until dad comes home. Uh, because of just how insane it is up here at the Capitol. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I, that's a heartwarming story, Cameron. Um, so, okay, I'm going to start with the big question. How do you keep up with all these bills, and um, how many are you actively tracking right now uh, as you watch what's going on? Yeah, we have a phenomenal team here at the League. I'm the director, and I actually started the League as an intern way back when in 2006. And so when I started here, um, I, we were tracking less than 100 bills on average each year. Uh, for the last few years, it's been more than double that. And as of yesterday, we were tracking uh, 220 bills. And the reason I say as of yesterday is because more bills have come out today and we'll be tracking those. So, so at this time of the session, it's, it's all hands on deck. And we have a phenomenal team uh, within the league and then we also rely on what we call our extended family of city managers and attorneys from other cities. And we, we are in hourly conversations with them about all these different bills. From a city perspective, what's stressing you out the most? <laughs> other than there's only uh, nine more days to go, uh, I think the biggest issue that we are facing across the state is how do we plan for growth and what does that mean in each part of the state? Uh, we often preach here at the Capitol the one size misfits all. And that's because we represent, uh, Mara, I'll give you the exact number, 255 cities, towns, and metro townships. And each of them has a unique story. The challenges and opportunities in Salt Lake City are different than St. George, which is different than Richfield. And part of our job is to make sure that legislators understand you know, when they're looking at these different policy levers, what are the impacts going to be in different communities? And so we work hard to bring that perspective. And then also foster a spirit of partnership with the state, because at the end of the day, we all represent the same constituents, and we're all focused on ensuring the quality of life of those constituents uh, both today and tomorrow. Cameron Deal, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time. And uh, Mara, one final thought is, so often we hear from Republicans in the legislature, local control, local control, local control. And as you heard Cameron say, you know, we used to track 100 bills and now it's, it just it has exploded. Is there a little bit of a sense right now on the Hill that this local control is being wrested away from some of these cities and towns with these big passed down plans from the legislature? Huge problems for cities are unfunded mandates. You know, we want you to do this and they don't give the sources to do that. Um, and, and the other big question is this issue of who gets to decide what and the heavy hand of the legislature, because cities are subordinate to it, can often create problems for city government. When we come back, former President Trump's attorney has managed to take the focus off the 2020 election interference in, in Georgia and place it on the person prosecuting the poss- with a possible conflict of interest case. Dave, Dave and Dejanovic. Mara Carabello is filling in for Debbie Dejanovic today. And, and Mara, you and I both caught on, on the three stations we're watching, Fox News, CNN, and News Nation, it's all the same guy. It is, and it's someone's dad, and he's been on for a long time. Um, <laughs> it's it's wild. interesting. Fanny Willis, uh, who is the district attorney who is responsible for the Georgia Trump case, is defending herself a little bit, and it looks like her dad is also. Yeah, you all, let's, let's dip in for a second, listen to what dad has to say. I've been places. And just because of the color of my skin, for example, I took a fellowship at Harvard when my daughter was just a, a 
if I might, Your Honor, if I might, when I was just, uh, she was just, you know. He's extremely animated, speaks with his hands, very much like me, big hands speaker, (laughs) you know, big motion. But the, the question is, okay, well, why are we talking about the district attorney in Fulton County? Uh, oh, it's because she's the one that is prosecuting, going after former President Donald Trump and the election interference. Uh, ABC Steve Osamani reports from Atlanta explains why uh, one of Trump's co-defendants is trying to get Willis, who's the district attorney, trying to prosecute him uh, for the racketeering case, you know, uh, manipulating the ele- the election. Uh, and this is uh, Steve Osamani's report from ABC. The attorney for one of the defendants who's doing most of the digging here wants her client's case thrown out and is asking the judge to remove Bonnie Willis from the election interference case because she enjoyed romantic getaways that were allegedly paid for by special prosecutor Nathan Wade, who Willis hired. He tells me how much it is and I give him the money back. Willis told the court that she paid Wade the money back, sometimes thousands of dollars in cash. And that's one of those uh, tricky little things. These two, uh, both lawyers uh, working on this case. And the question is, did she hire him inappropriately? So, or, or he, you know, work with her, how closely? And then they had this uh, relationship outside of the office where they went on these romantic getaways. And the question was, okay, well, who paid for what? Yeah, this is one of those interesting things where you have to ask yourself, what should I be paying attention to? Because when you start to get into the layers that we're in now, which is these two people's relationships and who pays for what, David, some weird stuff. Like they only paid for each other. They, They paid thousands of dollars in cash. And you start to just go, what the heck, man? This is really weird. But the question becomes... The legal question that we're trying to answer is there a conflict of interest? Would she or he need to recruit, recuse themselves? And does it have any bearing on the Trump case? The other strategy that I think you cannot lose track of is if you're looking at gameplay, the Trump's team wants to run out the clock. They don't want a Georgia decision before the election. So you have to ask yourself if this is strategic and or is it also a, a, legitimately, a legitimate legal concern. So funny, Willis was was asked to testify, and uh, that's what she did yesterday. Today, uh, oddly enough, her father is testifying uh, because the hearing is a disqualification hearing, saying that funny Willis should be disqualified from prosecuting Donald Trump in this case. And to, to this point, special prosecutors... Uh, are hired by uh, were hired by Funny Willis and and this relationship uh, was going on and when she was being questioned she was getting pretty feisty uh, about this and the twenty five hundred dollars in cash that she apparently gave back to her boyfriend probably the most money I've ever handed him is twenty five hundred dollars the least amount of money I've handed him probably between five hundred and a thousand dollars you never wrote him a check. Ma'am, I don't have checks. Okay. Um, so you have no proof of any reimbursement for any of these things because it was all cash, right? The testimony of one witness is enough to prove a fact. So my question was, was, do you have any proof? Is that what you're intimating right here? KSL legal analyst Greg Scordis joins us right now. Uh, Greg, wh- what do you make of this? Well, Mara nailed it on the head a, a minute ago when she talked about uh, the 
the fact that for the Trump team, the benefit to this is the stall. If he can put this case off until after the November election, and if he's elected, uh, this case is probably not going anywhere. And so it behooves him to put it off as long as possible. And it also helps him not to be convicted of a crime during an election cycle. So it's in, it's in his best interest to stall this off. Now, it's one of his co-defendants that's filed the motion, but certainly the, the, all of the co-defendants are working together here. And it's unusual also because Fannie Willis recused herself initially, or at least her office, and said, look, I don't want any appearance of impropriety. I'm going to bring in a special counsel, someone who's independent of my district attorney's office, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, to handle the case. And that was all well and good until it was established, or at least alleged, that she was having a relationship with the special prosecutor. So there, she hired her boyfriend. <laughs> right. That 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 sort of taints the whole uh, independence here. And and I don't know that it's going to get anywhere. I don't even think that that's a disqualify disqualifying factor, but it's certainly going to raise some red flags. But Greg, if for for simplicity's sake, say she she hired her boyfriend as the special prosecutor. She is hiring them, right? So there's a financial component to it where you're hiring that special prosecutor to do the job? Oh, yes. Of course. He's hired and he's getting a fee independent of whatever the county attorney's office gets. He, he's a special counsel. And, and attorneys do that periodically. It's not at all uncommon, but he's going to be paid by the county, by the district attorney's office out of their budget to prosecute the case and ostensibly still be independent of that office in terms of the directions that he takes and whether or not he can plea bargain the case, what charges to bring, and how to try the case. It's, it's really his case and his case alone to decide how it's going to be prosecuted and not his, not uh, the district attorney herself. Why is there so much contention over these romantic getaways and, and how Fonnie Willis uh, would reimburse him, not through Venmo or not you know, through a check, but like cold, hard cash, $2,500 worth of, of cash. Like, why is that significant? It's significant for the Trump team because there's no, there's no, uh, no way to prove it. There's no paper trail. And so they can make it appear that there really was no reimbursement and that this cash thing was just a, was just a, a sham and that it never actually occurred. It's sort of significant for her because maybe she wanted everything to be in cash to keep the relationship out of the public light. And so writing a check to your boyfriend is pretty good proof that you paid this person some money. So I think both sides sort of benefit by what happened here. But overall, the cash part of it kind of looks bad for her. So we've been hearing testimony for a couple of days. What what happens next? Well, the judge will rule two things, Mara. One is whether or not um, her office is recused and to what extent that means that the special counsel is. So if the judge says, you're off the case and Wade, you're off the case as well, it starts over and a different prosecuting entity will have to come in and decide whether they want to pick up the ball, whether they want to charge the case. And it's really going to start all over. I don't think that will occur. I think that, that Wade will stay on the case and he'll be able to prosecute the case. But it certainly is a disruption in the proceedings, as you mentioned earlier. KSL legal analyst Greg Scordis. Thanks, Greg. We appreciate you bringing that to us. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And didn't even get to this. Like, 
Still not sure why dad's testifying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what dad's doing, but he's there. Uh, Up next, Vladimir Putin's top opponent has died in prison at age 47. Hi, it's Dave and Debbie here of the Dave and Dejanovic Show on KSL News Radio. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and also catch our show live on KSL News Radio. Yeah, you don't need a keyword to listen to us, but if you want to win the AirPods, keyword Beehive. Good job, Dave. So text that keyword to 57500 and you'll be entered to win a pair of AirPod Pros. And be sure to listen for a new keyword next week and every week this February for even more chances to win. Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. I don't think I have an appropriate level of fear for Russian President Vladimir Putin. He is quite something. People often disappear or have bad things happen. I mean, there's a reason he is not eating or drinking anything without someone else tasting it first if you cross vladimir putin let's just give a couple examples uh think of the wagner group who was so crucial in the invasion in ukraine the leader evgeny prigozhin crosses putin threatens a coup to march on moscow they end up making nice Mm -hmm. and you know prigozhin you know retreats the troop and then a few months later, his plane gets blown out of the sky. An and he's accident killed. happened. Oh, and I, I'm sure. Yeah, total <laughs> and this accident. Was supposedly one of his good friends, right? Yeah, at oh, least at points in time. Yeah, one of his one of his top allies. Right. Uh, and and as soon as he crossed Vladimir Putin, he's dead. Well, another thing has happened. Uh, uh, Alexei Navalny uh, has now died in prison. He was one of the the top. I don't want to say combatants, but political rivals of Vladimir Putin. And at age 47, uh, we know that he was poisoned. Yeah. And if you can picture him, um, I don't know if you remember several years ago, he's super healthy. He's energetic when he ran his first, he he ran against Putin several years ago, which started his trouble. And he was clear headed and he was pro the people and he was a huge threat because I think his energy level, his connection, over time you see him poisoned a few times, um, thrown in jail for a 19-year sentence that has dubious descriptions of what he did wrong. Oh, yeah. And then and then he was moved, I believe, recently to Siberia. Anyway, he ends up dying. Anna Doba joins us right now from News Nation, anchor for the weekend edition of Morning in America. Anna, thank you for joining us. and. I, I guess I, I want to say I'm shocked, but not totally shocked either. Hi, guys. Yeah, I think you're right. And that was such a great setup talking about how healthy Navalny was looking. The last piece of video that came out from him was yesterday. Guys, he was in a small jail cell, but he was joking with the security guards for Valentine's Day. He actually tweeted out to his wife. I mean, just looking at that, he was healthy. He was that, you know, their mental sound. But like you mentioned, he's the most prominent critic of President Vladimir Putin, dying at 847. He was kept prisoner in a penal colony in the Arctic Circle, where he was moved last year. It's known as one of the harshest prisons in the world. Now, prison officials 
from that penal colony, uh, colony say, listen, he lost consciousness and he died after taking a walk on Friday. They're not saying much more. Navalny was serving a 30 and a half year jail sentence when he died on charges of supporting extremism and ordered him imprisoned under those harsh conditions. You may remember, and you brought this up, Navalny was poisoned with a military nerve agent. He was on a business trip in 2020, and he blamed that attempt on his life directly on Putin and, of course, spent his final years behind prison. Now, before his arrest, I don't know if you guys saw that amazing documentary on him. It came out in 2022. It was called Navalny. And he actually said, listen, if I'm ever killed, he told his supporters, don't give up. And this is the man for over a decade. He led nationwide protests against uh, Russian authorities. You know, he ran for office to challenge Putin. And he always said he always expected to not survive if he was going to be in prison. He never thought he was going to make it out of that prison. And he always said that. But he said he was going to make sure that other supporters or other people opposed to Putin had the strength and courage to speak up like he did. Now, while the cause of his death is not confirmed, Vice President Kamala Harris spoke this morning. She was actually at a, at a security conference in Munich, where Navalny's wife is, too, by the way. And she says, you know, whatever they say, let's, this is a quote from our vice president. Let's be clear. Russia is responsible. And we will have more to say on that later. We haven't gotten any confirmations, but that's what they believe. And as for his wife, Yulia Navalny, she was in Munich. She met with Vice President Kamala Harris. And in 2011, now this is one thing that's gaining a lot of traction today, President Biden had warned that Vladimir Putin that there would be consequences if Navalny died in prison. Of course, that was years ago, and now that has happened. So the question on everyone's mind is, what's next? So, you know, President, former President Donald Trump has had a unique relationship with Russian president. Mm-hmm. Any speculation on how this affects uh, maybe uh, Americans' perspective, but specifically Donald Trump or those who who uh, follow Donald Trump? That's such a great question. And you remember just earlier this week when uh, former President Trump made those comments about NATO and Russia going in for any NATO uh, allies that can't essentially yep. pay the bills. But this same week, Vladimir Putin said he prefers Biden in office or to win the election, saying he's more predictable and more seasoned than Trump. I've been watching Trump. He hasn't taken a truth social as of yet. It might be a matter of time. I'm sure he's sticking very closely to the Fonnie Willis case. I'm sure that's what he's watching right now. I know you covered that earlier in your show. Well, we appreciate you joining us in Adoba from News Nation, the anchor for the weekend edition of Morning in America, always joins us on Friday. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, guys. So I, I look at this and Again, sometimes we look at the leaders of nations, you know, whether it's uh, China Xi or, you know, Russia's Putin. And uh, I don't think we fully understand the power of the dictatorships. Mm-hmm. And when you see this, uh, this is just a reminder to me that Vladimir Putin has so much power and is so brutal and harsh that despite kind of the persona that we may build up and, and we think of them as presidential. Yeah. They are truly dictators. You know what it reminds me of as well is that unchecked power, which I think is what we're talking about with Putin, is gained incrementally. 
It's small acts that don't get opposed or defied. And I think it's a time in America where the impossible has happened a little bit. And we should ask ourselves at all levels, um, watching out and, 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 and guarding the flame of democracy, if you will, is small acts of unchecked power that eventually lead to dictatorships. And one thing I... I think that that kind of terrifies me about this this entire story is you see this in other countries where the opposition leader uh, gets jailed by the whoever right and and I think in part that that strikes nerves here in America as the former president is under several indictments faces you know umpteen years in prison whether that actually happens or not but you you can just you can see how uneasy we should be with the idea uh, of of jailing our political opponents. Right. Even if you if you think you could justify it, just it, it, we've seen this happen in other countries, and what a dangerous precedent that sends. Yeah. On the flip side of that, though, we need to be worried about demagoguery. We need to be worried about presidents who want to make policies about themselves and not about the citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see this show up in more and more executive orders because Congress isn't doing anything. There's a lot to watch. And the key to all of it is stick away from politics where we can and focus on policy, right? And so uh, these cults of personalities are, are, I think, a concern that we should pay attention to. One of the uh, the next things we're going to talk about as, as we shift away from this conversation is something that I'm, I'm so excited to, to look into. In the U.S., over 50,000 people with autism enter adulthood every year. Next, let's take a look into neuro-inclusive housing. What is that? What's neuro-inclusive housing? Well, what if these adults that are entering autism could live on their own? in their own community. Uh, That sounds like a pretty incredible opportunity. Let's learn more about that when we come back. Dave and Janovic. Let's talk about autism. Autism in Utah is so common. One in 40 kids are born with autism here in Utah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And... These kids grow up, right? Yeah. And the other thing that's that's so interesting as we as we get better as a community talking about people's ability levels. We all have different ability levels and given pretty easy sometimes, sometimes complicated support, you just open up all different kinds of communities to being able to do anything they want. But a lot of families as you suggest in Utah are dealing with the impacts and effects of autism. And I think we've made some incredible strides over the last several years. The last decade, for sure, the investment, uh, the programs that are available, especially in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, we we allow for several extra years past their 18th birthday right. where you can stay in schooling, go, go to class. Uh, there, there are some wonderful opportunities, but at age 21... 50,000 people with autism enter adulthood every year. And then uh, another layer to this is, okay, well, then what? What happens once they're adults and they no longer have the resources of the school? Right, and the structure. And and, the structure, which is so crucial crucial for for kids with, with autism. And as they move into adulthood, 
what's next? And then, okay, how long do adults with autism live? Right. And and I think what we found is life expectancy is pretty on par. I mean, you know, there's always those health related yeah. and exercise and all of that. But life expectancy, I remember I, I, I come from a household who has a, a severely disabled, my older brother is, and gosh, he was born and they said he won't live to be two years, then then a teenager, and then da da da. And he is now, I'm going to get his age wrong, but I think he's 58 or 59 years old, yeah. and he is much more severe. So the life expectancy of people with autism is as long as any of us. So we need to have a real conversation of, okay, what are, what's the support structure look like after they're done with school, after they're 21, and what's the long-term plan? Because uh, 872,000 uh, autistic adults live with caregivers that are over the age of 60. Wow, that's an so amazing. where are the resources? Sumiko Martinez joins us right now as the director of Autism After 21. It's a Utah project. Sumiko, thank you for joining us. I think this is so fascinating. Fascinating. Can you describe a little bit how big of an issue it is uh, for adults with autism and then specifically in finding housing? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us on to talk about this. Um, so as you mentioned, there are a lot of folks with autism and also with other intellectual and developmental disabilities who live with family caregivers. Um, and just in the state of Utah alone, over 32,000 folks live with a caregiver over the age of 60. And so we have a situation where um, caregivers are aging. And what is going to happen when their caregiver is no longer able to, to care for people or if they suddenly pass away? So currently um, in Utah and across the country, there is not enough supportive housing and the wait lists are years long. Um, at the family level, we can prepare for this by doing person-centered planning to ensure that individuals' housing needs will be met even after their caregivers pass away. And then also at a societal level, we need to make sure that the infrastructures in place to support people with intellectual and developmental disabilities throughout their entire lives. Give us a sense of what it is to be person-centered housing or neuro-inclusive housing. What, what does that mean? Absolutely. So neuro-inclusive housing is a relatively new concept. And what it really means is residential opportunities that are created to be financially, physically, and cognitively accessible. Um, so those three elements are really important. A, a lot of folks who have autism and other IDD um, are often economically disenfranchised. Um, some people are not able to work. Some people face employment discrimination that prevents them from working. Um, and so the financial accessibility is really important. Physical accessibility, of course, is just part of, um, you know, part of our society's ADA requirements, the Americans with Disabilities Act. But then cognitive accessibility is really a new, uh, a really new kind of idea. So when we're thinking about cognitive accessibility, we have to think about three things. The actual built environment, so the structure um, and the design of the home itself, long-term support services, you know, through the Department of um, Services for People with Disabilities, 
And then also supportive amenities, such as community navigators or um, even things like having group events organized as part of an apartment community's life that help people to be included and immersed in the community as much as they want to be. You help publish uh, this neuro-inclusive housing market analysis. What were, we only have about a minute left, but I know there is so much in here. Was there something that stood out to you specifically? Yes. Um, I mean, the report is huge. As you mentioned, there's a ton of data in there. And if anyone's curious, um, please go go search it out on our website, neuroinclusiveutah.org. Um, but I think the thing I want people to know the most about is how do we how do we address this problem? So data is a big piece. Um, please read the report, learn about the hard data behind it. People have you know, their needs and preferences expressed here, and now it's up to us to take this ball and run with it and make sure that we are taking care of everyone in our society. Yeah, it will be fascinating uh, to to continue this conversation. We, we definitely need to continue it because we don't speak enough about the practicality uh, of having a, ch- a child that uh, that is going to need support services or care for the rest of their lives. So Sumiko, thank you so much for, for joining us. Autism After 21, Utah Project has some incredible data. I was, I'd gone through uh, a, a chunk of it and I, it, it really opened my eyes, Mara, to the problem uh, that, that many families are dealing with right now is they're the caregivers, the moms and dads right. out there are no longer uh, able to because they're they're too old or right. they're unhealthy and they can't take care of these kids. And this is an area where a little education and a little conscientiousness and a little more resources make huge gains for, as you suggest, what could end up being one in four Utahns. And uh, government support will obviously uh, be, be an important part of it. Nonprofits will play a role. Uh, so I think looking into this even deeper is absolutely uh, crucial. Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. I chuckle whenever I see crazy poll numbers. <laughs> the poll numbers that, you know, again, we cannot even agree on the fact that chocolate peanut butter ice cream is the greatest ice cream oh, in the world. We agree on this, Dave. Really? Yes. Thank I, you. I am going to double that down and say uh, exactly. So 100% of the hosts of David <laughs> Dujanovic today love chocolate peanut butter ice cream. So that empirical evidence, obviously. So 87% of people in the West think their children are not spending enough time outdoors. I, you are kind of chuckling, like saying 85% of people here in Utah want the Olympics to come. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. When it's too high, I'm suspicious and want to know who sold you that bill of goods. <laughs> who sold you that? But I I can't say this actually rings true. This is like the common sense test. I believe it. I right. think most people are like, my kid does not spend enough time yeah. outdoors. They're in front of a screen. Yep. They're indoors. Yep. They're as pale as a ghost. And we're getting more and more information, too. I think one of the reasons this is top of mind for parents is mental health is a big issue. Post-COVID, all that stuff, and we're getting more and more good data showing that nature touching. I read this study once that if you 
if you touch soil, like if you're a gardener and you uh-huh. are touching soil, it reduces your stress level. I mean, you know, that, like this relationship we have with nature. But one of the cool things um, is is where this particular set of numbers were thrown around come from. This is a study that uh, a university in Colorado has have done, but they've Utah's always been a part of this study. And they have data over, I think, 14 years asking us these same questions, just about outdoor rec and how we experience nature. And we have seen a bit of an uptake among parents in saying, yeah, nature is becoming more and more important. Okay, this is is fascinating to me, especially with thinking that it goes back 14 years. Joining us right now, Dave Metz, uh, who's conducted this research, joins us right now. Uh, You've been doing it for 14 years? 14 years. Yes. Okay, that that takes us back to like iPhone 1 time. So this this is like I don't even know how to qualify this before iPhone like BIP that it's like 14 years BIP after iPhone. Okay, so what what have you seen? This is this is really going to be fascinating to me to see as we went from smartphone being, you know, only the rich kids have it to everybody's got the smartphone. How has that changed over the last 14 years in your research? Well, I mean, it's uh, it has been a turbulent 14 years, not just in terms of the technological change, but if you think about the political and economic and uh, the global pandemic that we've experienced over that period of time, there's there's been a lot to shake things up. But one of the things that's been really striking in the poll results is the consistency that we've seen both across the West and in Utah where the value that voters place on the outdoors, on the natural setting in which they live, its spectacular beauty, its opportunities for recreation, um, is really, really important to them. And they have voiced very consistent support for conservation throughout the the decade we've done the poll, uh, with numbers that have barely moved, despite everything else that's going on in the world. So, Dave, I wanted you to talk a little bit Utah specifically. As you um, know well, we have robust conversations here about how our public lands should be used, whether they should be used for, you know, motorized vehicles, hiking, biking. And then we also have this question of natural resource and access. Did your polling discuss how we want our, our, our natural world to be used? It it does. We did explore that issue. There's a question that we've asked pretty much every year that we've done the poll about people's priority when it comes to how national public lands are, are managed. And obviously, Utah has an abundance of those. And we essentially give people a choice. Should it be a higher priority for Congress to focus on protecting sources of clean water, air quality and wildlife habitat, opportunities for recreation, or Uh, producing more domestic energy by maximizing the amount of those lands that are available for responsible oil and gas drilling and mining. And what the public tells us is, by a pretty overwhelming margin, they want to put that priority on conservation and recreation. Among Utahns, 70 percent say that they think conservation should be the priority. 24 percent say that they think energy development should. And I think a lot of that just comes from the fact that Utahns love to be in the outdoors, and it really just sort of leaps off the page in the poll. We asked our respondents how often they participate in a variety of different recreational activities. And among Utahns, 74% say they hike or, or run or walk outdoors regularly, 62% camp, uh, 38% do wildlife uh, watching or, or viewing. 
um, and large numbers hunt, fish, and do other kinds of active recreation as well. And so I think it's that's such a central part of people's lives in Utah that it leads to that high priority that they put on conservation. An incredibly Im- popular part of recreation, especially here in Utah, is the you know the off-road vehicles, the the side by sides that are able to take uh, many people in, into the the farthest back countries of Utah. With that popularity and understanding the environmental impact of these vehicles, you know, going back country, uh, how how's that balance working with with folks that want to conserve, that want to enjoy nature, but then you have this other element of it with, with all these vehicles? Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, almost a quarter of Utahns, 23%, say that they ride an off-road vehicle or a snowmobile on a regular basis. Um, the survey didn't probe into a lot of details about use of mechanized recreation on, on public lands. Um, and obviously, there are a lot of questions about the different levels of protection that different lands have in that regard. Um, we didn't dig into that, but I do think that that kind of recreation is again, part of what Utahns love about having such easy access to these lands. So, Dave, I know one of the things you do in polling is to be able to see who's saying what. And what is the partisan divide? Are there, are there big differences um, if you're a Republican or a Democrat or if you're a male or a female? Um, or are, those, are these all things we all believe? Um, well, it's really interesting because, you know, as you point out, there is enormous partisan divide on just about every topic in public life. I mean, you all were talking about ice cream flavors. It wouldn't surprise me if Democrats and Republicans view it very differently. Um, as a professional pollster, I'll say the best ice cream flavor is mint chocolate chip, but oh. we'll set that aside. Um, but when we look at the poll data, what we see is there's actually a lot of partisan consistency on these issues. It's one of those rare things in American life where we see Democrats, Republicans, and independents sharing this common value for protecting land, water, and wildlife. Now, there are partisan differences in, in the degree. For example, on that question that we talked about a moment ago, would you prioritize conservation or energy development on public lands? 89% of Democrats prioritize conservation, 72% of independents, but also 52% of Republicans. So there's a difference in the breadth of the agreement, but voters across all parties say, yes, conservation should be the priority. Dave Metz, thank you for joining us, president of FM3 Research. Uh, fascinating, it, it really, how consistent it is and uh, in, in how popular some of these ideas are. It's 93% of people say that spending more time uh, outdoors significantly helps with mental health in young people. Uh, and, uh, again, I, it surprises me that it's that high, but at the same time, Common sense kind of tells you, I think even if we are a little bit homebound and we like our couch and we like our devices, we still understand the importance of the sun. That's right. It makes us lucky to live in Utah. We do. We have a lot of outdoor that we can enjoy in the summer and the winter. Uh, and it's it's a beautiful day today, uh, even though it's a little cloudy. I mean, beautiful in the sense that we don't have that miserable rain that we had yesterday That was awful. (laughs) Good recovery. Okay, uh, let's talk more about this mighty power district announced by the Larry H. Miller Company. Mario and I break this down of the $3.5 billion proposed investment. Dave and Dujanovic. Dave and Dujanovic. Okay, before we talk about the Major League Baseball Stadium plan, that's how I view it. 
sure you can call it about, you know. Other things. Other things. You can say, <laughs> this is developing the west side fine. But it's building the baseball stadium. But first, I got to tell you about secret contest time. That's right. Uh for our podcast listeners only, if you download our podcast, the Dave and Dujanovic podcast, you can find it on kslpodcast.com or obviously, you know, wherever you get your podcast. Just bring up the Dave and Dujanovic podcast, listen to one of our segments, and there's a little secret word in there. It's not very secret. It's very obvious. I'm like, here's the secret word. I give you the, the secret word. You text it at 57500 into the show, and you get entered into winning a pair of AirPod Pros. Cool. Not the cheap ones, not the ones you buy your kids. These are the nice ones for mom and dad. Nice. So after you forgot uh, to buy your wife something for <laughs> come, Valentine's, this, come is, through big. <laughs> this is where you this is where you dunk over the top like a big win. Okay, let's move on to the power district, which can we just admit the power district is amazing marketing? It's a heck of a name. It is Great really name. good, you know. And Better it, than Silicon Slopes. Worked, oh yeah, it works for a long time too. Like it's just cool. Yeah. And boy, if you have not taken the time yet, Google this because you will pop up a million renderings, and these look so amazing. They're they. It's cool. There's everything. They're happy people. There there's restaurants. There's sports. There's gathering places. Community places. There's a Ferris wheel, there, and then this is this is the big one for me. They're creating a river walk. Yeah. So the Jordan River, surprisingly, runs right through. Yeah. You know this this area. We've never paid attention to the Jordan River. It's. I don't know. Am I going to hurt anyone's feelings by saying it's kind of gross right now? I mean, well, it's not. I mean, it's not fancied are, up. Sure, sure. Yeah, I will say, married to a former police officer, there's some stuff in the Jordan River, right? Don't drink it. Let's just say that. But they're going to clean it up. They're taking a little bit of a page from Denver here. There, there's a river that goes through the lower part of Denver, and there's now kayakers, and it's this amazing gathering place. Well, I will tell you in. The Southwest Quadrant in the Fair Park region, there's just more opportunity for really cool stuff and a river walk. So I love that they are focused on the Jordan River. They expected to be about three and a half billion dollars worth of investment. And when the Larry H. Miller Group, they're developing this, when they announced this, they released a video. And the video has everybody. <laughs> and if you're thinking, of, oh, Dave's just, you know, exaggerating here they they have everybody they have the governor they have the speaker of the house this the president of the senate they have uh democratic senators and representatives speaking about this and and they're they're really focusing oh by the way mayor aaron mendenhall as well as in this uh let me play you a little bit of a clip as they're speaking to the importance of developing the West Side. The West Side has long been overlooked for economic development. The West Side has been hungry and ready for decades. You know, the, the West Side has been like a shopping and entertainment desert. The West Side has been neglected for too long, and, and, and gratefully, the Miller family has seen the vision to invest in this geographical location in a way that's going to bring more investment into the area and lift everybody who lives on that West Side. I'm not sure you can really argue with any of those points, that not the West great. Side has been ignored, yeah. in part because it was the power district before it was 
a cool power district, mm-hmm. right? This is where the smokestacks were. This is where uh, energy was was generated. And there's some problems that come along with all that energy that had been created over the yeah, years. Yeah, so I just want to re-own my contrarian space here for a second. And what I want to say is I'm not a wet blanket. I'm really excited about this. I'm a huge baseball fan. But I do think it's fair to not be Utah nice right now and to have questions. I think when you question projects and want to know answers and want to see details, it doesn't mean you're a downer. It doesn't mean that you're not a supporter. And I think we get into that trap a little of like, oh, I I want to be nice. I think the developers are really great stewards. But we're talking about $3.5 billion. We're talking about what is inevitable displacement of a community. If anybody tells you, I mean, we're talking about disruption of a community. So how do we maintain on behalf of those people who have lived there? How do they stay living there? And then devil's in the details on where this money is coming from. And who should pay for it? Who should pay? Because there's going to be a massive cleanup project that is going to have to happen to get this this area ready. And that stuff is expensive. Now, they'll probably be able to cap some of it, but environmental cleanup is heavily regulated, heavily expenses. We know that the average cost of an MLB stadium is about seven hundred thousand. I think we're or seven. Excuse me, seven hundred million. I think we're looking at one just over a billion dollars, um, and that's not even Vegas style, right? And and then just the care and upkeep. You have a lot of let's use a planning word interstitial. So spaces in between big things. How do you maintain those and keep those up? And that's a big safety issue. And so I just think as we get our excitement, which we should be excited. Uh, I'm a little worried about taxpayer dollars. And I mean, I, hey, I'm a tax and spender. And I'm a little worried that we're going to be spending too many taxpayer dollars. Well, when you look at the financial benefits of a Major League Baseball stadium, now, no question, $700 million to build a stadium can be extremely, it's extremely expensive. It, development in general is. That's why we're seeing this huge number, $3.5 billion. But who is building this? Where are these jobs coming from? And these are local contractors. These are local companies, largely, yeah. that are going to be building this. So I see it as, despite the fact that there are some fair worries that you have, this is a huge influx of money coming into not just Salt Lake, but into Utah. So Dave, you're spot on. During the building phase, whoo. There is nothing but up, right? It creates jobs. It creates energy. It improves areas. The building phase of these massive visionary projects. And again, I am for it. I am again. I am for generational. Um, the building phase is terrific. There's a lot of questions about long-term economics being associated with major draws like um, sports arenas. You. It doesn't mean you can't overcome it. But what I think is interesting is to have the pro-con while we're doing it so these things that we are excited about are successful. No doubt it'll be a boom during the building. The big question is, what happens the decade after? And it's a very fair question because these stadiums, after 30 or 40 years, what happens? Right. They want a new stadium. Right. And that it's in part why Oakland wants to leave. They didn't want to build another stadium for the A's, so they moved to Las Vegas. Uh, and and this is a common, common theme. Uh, as soon as you've had your initial excitement, a few decades, then they're like, well, we're ready for 
Arena number two. Something bigger, something better. Stadium number two. The other thing is, if the government's going to own it, which I'm not sure they should, I want to make sure we get money from it, too. That's the little nugget. (laughs) If the government owns it, oh, I wish we could dive into that. Mara Carabello, thank you for filling in for Debbie Dijanovic today. We'll turn things over to Andy. Movie show. Hi, it's Dave and Debbie here of the Dave and Dijanovic Show on KSL News Radio. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and also catch our show live on KSL News Radio. Yeah, you don't need a keyword to listen to us, but if you want to win the AirPods, keyword Beehive. Good job, Dave. So text that keyword to 57500 and you'll be entered to win a pair of AirPod Pros. And be sure to listen for a new keyword next week and every week this February for even more chances to win.